1: to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshaldon and today we're going to talk to Mary Cohn about her history of bewitchment and demonic possession in and around 17th century Quebec. Mary Cowan is Associate Professor Teaching Stream at the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, with a cross appointment to the Institute for the Study of University Pedagogy. She is a historian of the late medieval and early modern world, with specializations in the social and religious histories of Scotland and New France. She is also deeply interested in pedagogy. How Best to Teach and Learn History and has published research on the development of critical thinking skills in history courses. She is also the recipient of several teaching awards from the University of Toronto, the Ontario Confederation of University Faculty Associations and the Canadian Historical Association. Her most recent book, The Possession of Barb Allais, Diabolical Arts and Daily Life in Early Canada is a micro-history of bewitchment in New France. Like me, she's a member of the board of directors, we call them officers, of the Champlain Society, and has for years led our program in outreach to teachers and students. Mary, it's a real pleasure to have you here with us today.
0: Thank you very much, Greg. It's my pleasure to be with you.
1: You describe this book as being inspired by and very much within the tradition of microhistories including Carlo Ginzburg's The Cheese and the Worms that was published in 1976 and Natalie Zemon Davis's The Return of Martin Guerre which was published in 1983 now what exactly is a microhistory and how does your book fit within this tradition
0: Microhistory is an approach It is a historical approach that focuses on small things to address big questions. It looks up close at a single object of study, paying attention to the details that we can see in historical sources, but also steps back into the wider context of those sources so that we can draw more expansive conclusions. The micro-histories, such as the ones that you just mentioned, can be really powerful ways of presenting historical research. They often centre around a topic somewhat outside the mainstream of historical research, and that can open our eyes to greater complexities in the past. In doing this, they uncover information about the lives of people who are usually left out of the historical record and they take these people seriously as subjects worthy of investigation. So that's what micro-histories do as an approach. And when done well, micro-histories are really engaging. As a convention of their structure, they make the process of how we understand history part of the main story. So, they discuss what we can and can't know from our sources. Sometimes they even include the historian as a character in the research. Then, as a convention of style, microhistories tend to be written very clearly, sometimes even playfully, which makes them appealing to a wide audience.
1: Are there micro-histories other than your own with a Canadian focus?
0: Yes, there are. For the early period, the most well-known is probably Alan Greer's book, The Mohawk Saint, Catherine Tekakwitha and the Jesuits. For your listeners more interested in more modern history, there's Ruth Sandwell's essay, History as Experiment, Microhistory and Environmental History. The book that I've written fits into this tradition By taking what seems like a small topic, this one case of suspected bewitchment for a few years in and around the town of Quebec, and analyzes the historical sources carefully in detail to learn about the everyday lives of ordinary people, then connect these details to larger themes in early modern history.
1: The scene of the bewitchment that you describe is New France in the years just before it became a royal colony in 1663. It focuses, of course, on Quebec City and the settlements that were snuggled around it. As our witness to yesterday, describe what you would have seen and perhaps smelled as you arrived for the first (laughs) time in New France.
0: Right. Well, if you were arriving from France, you would arrive by ship. And so you would first see the town from the St. Lawrence River, which would give you an excellent vantage point. You would notice that the settlement had both an upper town and a lower town, as old Quebec City does today. You would certainly notice that the upper town was built on top of a high cliff, a cliff about 40 meters high, and that is where the most prestigious buildings were located. These buildings included the College of the Jesuits, an Ursuline convent, a hospital, and the residence of the governor that was given the rather grand name of the Chateau Saint-Louis. (laughs) Looking down, you would see the lower town at the shore of the river. This was the centre of commercial activity, also where a lot of the houses were found. Depending on exactly where you came from in France and how far you had travelled, you might think the settlement was quite small. It had probably fewer than 800 residents when Barbalais arrived. For a point of comparison, Paris at this time had about half a million people. You were curious about the smells, too. Uh, Well, again, depending on where you came from in France, you might think that this town smelled pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Cities in early modern Europe had a reputation for what people called bad air. And travellers could smell the cities as they approached. The town of Quebec, because it was relatively small and on a a river, it had fewer strong smells than most towns in Europe. And European travellers to Quebec often wrote about what they called healthy air in the town of Quebec, which likely referred to the lack of noxious stench.
1: So who was... Barb Allais, where did she come from in France, and how did she end up going to North America in 1659?
0: Right. This is one of those questions we can only partially answer. We know that she was a French migrant to New France. She was born near the city of Chartres, which is southwest of Paris. We know that her father's name was Jean-Baptiste Allais, We know that her mother's name was Mathurine Vallée, and she had two sisters when she set off across the Atlantic Ocean. We don't know much about Barbalet's life in France or exactly why she came to North America. Thanks to the excellent work of several generations of historians of the demographics of Quebec, though, we know a lot about migration to New France, and we can try to fit this family into the general pattern. Her father came to New France first, by 1655 at the latest, and then he returned to France before returning to Quebec with his wife and his daughters in 1659 on board the ship, the sacrifice of Abraham, arriving on the 16th of June.
1: So what were the circumstances surrounding Mademoiselle Allais' initial demonic possession?
0: Well, there was nothing suspicious at all about these circumstances at first. Mademoiselle Allais seemed to have nothing to fear when she first arrived, at least not according to the people around her. She had a very typical job as a domestic servant at the Seigneurie of Beauport, an estate a few kilometres outside the town. At the Seigneurie, according to several accounts, Barbalais became terrified by demons and specters. Priests from the town of Quebec tried to exorcise the malevolent spirits, but they did not succeed. And then the manifestations became stranger. Witnesses described hearing phantasmal music and seeing stones that detach themselves from walls to fly by themselves. Those were the initial stages.
1: So... What about the antagonist in this story, the miller, Daniel Will? Why was he viewed with such suspicion right from the beginning?
0: Right from the beginning. First and probably foremost, he was viewed with suspicion because Barbe Allais identified him as the person responsible for the demonic torments. This identification made sense to the people around her because Daniel Vril was probably already looking pretty suspicious in people's minds. One reason for this was his religious background. Vril had been a Huguenot, which is a French Calvinist Protestant. As a Protestant, he would have been expected to renounce this Protestantism before arriving in New France because by this time, by law, only Catholics were allowed to settle in the colony. But people knew about Vril's earlier adherence to what the Catholic Church viewed as a heresy, and they mentioned it repeatedly in the sources connected to the case. Vril may also have seemed suspicious because of his occupation. You mentioned that he was a miller, And millers in France were associated with exploitation and dishonesty. If you think of where they worked, they worked in these noisy mills a little outside the main settlement, which made them isolated in their work. And they were sometimes charged with cheating their customers by using false-bottomed containers in order to, um, to cheat the measurements of grain that customers brought in to be milled. So millers had a reputation for being untrustworthy figures. So what we see is barbalet accused Vril by name, He might have been suspicious already because of this religious background and his occupation, and then the people heard about a motivation that made sense to them. According to one account, the specific incident that prompted Vril to launch the demonic torments in the first place was a spurned offer of marriage. He had wanted to marry Barba Ale and said she had been promised to him, but because he was a man of bad customs, no one listened to what he had to say. He then became angry and decided to avenge himself for the refusal, using diabolical arts to corrupt Ale and make her marry him. That motivation was credible to early modern French people because they believed witches were motivated by spite, especially envy when denied something they desired, Here, Vril desired to marry Allais and was denied. Spite and ill will ensued.
1: So looking back out into the broader history of the period, you described this very well, but explain to us why the settlers in New France were so anxious, so on edge during this particular era.
0: The settlers were anxious and on edge in a few years around 1660 because many aspects of their colonial plans were not turning out as they had expected. They had found no easy route to Asia. They had discovered no immense deposits of gold. The indigenous people in North America were not simply becoming French, as some in France had rather arrogantly presumed, and the French crown was having trouble attracting migrants. Several of their missionary endeavors were falling apart, and the French in North America were intermittently at war with several groups. These French settlers wrote in an especially anxious tone about attacks by the five nations of the Haudenosaunee, the French called uh, this group the Iroquois. And although the French did not completely understand the complex international relationships of the Haudenosaunee, they knew their settlements were vulnerable to attack, especially when these French settlements were cut off from France because of ice in the river for several months every year. So, the French colonial project in North America was insecure and the colonists knew it. Adding to these worldly, almost existential concerns, they began to see otherworldly portents. They spotted a comet in the sky, a man of fire and a canoe in flame. In the air, they said they heard a thunderous, horrible voice and they were scared.
1: You examine multiple sources to unravel conflicting evidence concerning Daniel Vuil's charge and his sentence of execution. What conclusion did you finally arrive at given this plethora of conflicting evidence?
0: <laughs> After looking at these sources with their conflicting evidence, I think Vuil was shot. That was the means of his execution. But his his crime is more difficult to determine. It may have been illegal trade in liquor, which is what was suggested by a marginal note on one of the sources. It may have been a religious crime, such as relapsing into heresy, which seems to have been the reason for his imprisonment several months prior to the execution. But neither of these crimes usually led to a death sentence in New France. And so, to understand what was really going on with Vuille, we actually need to look at an ongoing conflict between the leaders of the colony. The governor, Pierre de Voyer d'Argenson, and the bishop, François de Laval did not get along. They quarreled about a lot of things. They quarreled about where the benches of each of them should be placed in church. They quarreled about who got to kneel on what cushion. They quarreled about who should be saluted first by schoolchildren and so much more. <laughs> they, they also disagreed about whether Vuil was guilty of witchcraft and who should be responsible for the prosecution. The bishop, Laval, wanted a warning to be published against Vuille and other witches, but the governor, Voyer d'Argenson, refused. So Laval did not get his way, at least not at first. But then Voyer d'Argenson requested to return to France, and his replacement passed a sentence of death against Vuille.
1: Now, Mademoiselle Hallet continued to be possessed after Ville's execution. What happened after the execution to her, and how was she dealt with in the colony?
0: Right. Well, after the execution, the possession continued, and Barballet was not held to blame for this. So different people in the colony continued to try to help her. She was brought into a hospital, the Hôtel Dieu in Quebec where she was apparently still being agitated by a demon by night, although during the day, Allais helped to care for the sick. The nuns at the hospital were supposed to look after their patients' bodies and souls. Allais' main protector against demons was the nun Catherine de Saint-Augustin. Catherine already had a reputation for fighting against demons. Her confessor said he had once seen Catherine's arm as black as ink from the demon's blows. So Catherine tried to protect Allais, but in spite of her efforts, Barbalais was still suffering from possession when she left the hospital and returned to Beauport to resume her role as a servant. It was here at Beauport that she was finally liberated from her demonic torments, and this happened through a dramatic ritual performed by the Seigneuresse, uh, the wife of the Seigneur at Beauport, a woman named Marie Renoir Renoir used a relic from a recently deceased Jesuit priest to conjure the demon and then command it to depart.
1: In what ways was uh, Barb Allais possession similar to other possessions of the era, and what ways was it different?
0: Right. Well, belief in possession by malevolent spirits can be found in cultures around the world. Uh, The comparison that probably makes the most sense here is one with early modern France, since that's where most of our main participants came from. This case is similar to early modern French cases of demonic possession in several ways. Most people thought to be demonically possessed in early modern Europe were women and children. Barballée fit with that pattern. She was a female teenager. Early modern Europeans thought that a common cause of possession was bewitchment, and moreover, they thought that male suitors sometimes used love magic to cause the possession of women who refused their advances. Here, an interpretation from the 17th century of this case is that Daniel Vril was using witchcraft to send demonic torments against Barbalet after she was refused in marriage to him. So that sounds like demonic possession in Europe. Also, as in Europe, observers showed caution when trying to understand what was happening. They were cautious in discernment. Several of the sources for this case report some kind of malefice, some kind of evil power, but at first they're not confident about whether they're dealing with obsession or possession, whether they're facing demons or something less threatening. Once witnesses started to perceive the case as truly demonic possession in their minds, They followed pretty standard procedures, including that they treated Ale as separate from the demon inhabiting her body. There were some differences, though, between this case of possession and what people might have expected to see in early modern France. This demon spoke French in the accounts. In Europe, by contrast, the demonic language of choice in possessions was usually Latin. Although, yeah, sometimes the demons employed Greek or or Hebrew or a modern language not understood by the possessed person. But here, the demon spoke French. Uh, I think that's an interesting point, but perhaps more significantly, the person who eventually succeeded in casting out the demon was separate from what people expected to see in France too. By this time, Exorcists in France were priests, so they were male clerics, but here it's a laywoman who performed a ritual that looks like an exorcism in all but name.
1: So what happened to Barb a lay after? What became of
0: her? Well, her life after the possession ended was really quite remarkably unremarkable, <laughs> considering her considering all of the attention that went into this possession. After its conclusion, um, the pattern of her life fits very neatly into what you might expect from a typical female French settler in late 17th century New France. She returned to the town of Quebec to work as a servant. Her first place of employment was in the household of a merchant, and then it was back in the hospital, now as a waged labourer. She married a man who was also working as a servant in the hospital. They moved across the river and settled on a farm where they raised several children.
1: We talked earlier about what microhistory is and how it looks up close, the details of small things to ask big questions. So what are some of the bigger questions in Canadian history that can be explored through this one case of demonic possession?
0: I think that one big question that can be explored is how 17th century New France fits into the larger early modern world. For example, how much was New France like Old France? And how much was changed because settlers had to make concessions to the realities of life in North America? We can see through the sources of this case that leaders in both France and New France were trying in some sense to replicate France in North America, to make it though even better than Old France. They were trying to form an improved France, a place filled with loyal French Catholic subjects who would be destined for heaven. Leaders of the Catholic Church believed that their religion was true for everyone, whether people believed it or not, while leaders of the French state believed everyone would want to become French, given the chance. We see here, though, that experiences in North America demonstrated these presumptions to be untrue. Indigenous people were in some cases converting to Catholicism and adopting some French practices, but not always in ways that missionaries or colonial leaders hoped. French settlers, meanwhile, adjusted how they built their houses, what kinds of food they ate, and even who had the authority to fight demons once they came to North America. So that's one big question. Another big question we can explore in this case is why there were not any witch hunts or mass possessions in New France, after leaders in the colony were so concerned with bewitchment for Right To answer that question, we need to step back and look at changes in politics and the economy of New France, as well as the development of ideas over in Europe. We can see that the colony of New France, after about 1663, was becoming more secure politically and economically, but that its religious culture was changing from what the French founders had wanted, and these founders' earlier ideals were receding from view. Although many French colonists still believed in witches and demons, learned opinion in Europe was shifting into a different direction, and doubt was becoming more prominent in educated demonology. This opinion had an influence in New France, where leaders were becoming more and more reluctant to prosecute possible cases of witchcraft. That's a second big question. The big question that was most surprising to me was how anxious the colonists were. We come to this history with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, I first encountered this history while on family vacation in Quebec. I was reading the letters of a 17th century French nun named Marie de l'Incarnation. This is this is apparently my my very nerdy taste in holiday reading. And <laughs> while re- <laughs> while reading these letters in 21st century Quebec City, it was obvious to me that the the settlement had survived, that it had thrived over hundreds of years, but I also came to realize that the settlers living there at the time of Barbelet did not know what was going to happen to them. Their New France was precarious. The French king and his royal ministers wrote very confident, confident edicts about the glory of New France but the settlers knew that they relied on alliances with Indigenous nations and help from France and good luck. So I was reminded by these settlers' accounts that we need to look beyond how things turned out to how people in the past thought about their own time.
1: Well, Mary, I can't let you go without telling everyone that you've been instrumental in designing and launching an innovative new series of resources for educators. It's entitled Teaching Resources from the Champlain Society, Primary Sources in Historical Context. Now, draws on the Champlain Society's vast catalog of primary materials And its aim is to provide teachers in both elementary and secondary schools with new tools for teaching primary sources to students and to really engage them so that they will better understand the past. Can you give us an example from this series, perhaps relevant to the book that I've just reviewed with you?
0: Our first two packages bring together multiple perspectives, both French and Indigenous, about the building of the habitation at Quebec in the early 17th century. And these packages could be really useful to teach about 17th century New France. The forthcoming package that we will have out soon draws upon letters by James Wolfe to help students use primary sources to think about historical significance. So I think these might all help students read primary sources carefully and with a sensitivity to context in which the sources were created to help them better understand early Canadian history.
1: Well, Mary, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's been my delight to be here.
1: My guest today was Mary Cowan, the author of The Possession of Barb Palais, Diabolical Arts and Daily Life in Early Canada, published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at the best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L. R. Wilson Institute of History of McMaster University as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallton. This interview was recorded on October 11th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team who also support the Champlain Society.